I wanted to talk about this quote. I love this one quote by Gil Fransdahl, who some of you may know. He's an awesome teacher. He's in the, the Bay Area. He has a, he's, um, one of the guiding teachers at Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, which is just south of San Francisco. And then they have a retreat center, Insight Retreat Center, um, which is, gosh, I think it's been open maybe 10 years. I want to say just a few years, but it's been open a while. And Gil is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful teacher. And Audio Dharma is their website. They have a lot of talks and things on Audio Dharma. They've been recording and posting for forever. So, and they post classes and have handouts and things that you can just do on your own. So they're wonderful. But Gil said um, he had this. He have I have this one quote from him. I'm not sure where I got it. Whether I copied it down from a book or from something he said. He said, the perfection of wisdom is when the heart and mind neither cling to nor resist anything. The perfection of wisdom is when the heart and mind neither cling to nor resist anything. And I really like that because it talks about both the heart and the mind. Because sometimes we can get... um, out of balance and kind of hang out too much with the mind or hang out too much with the heart or, or we give, uh, we, we have preference for one or the other. Uh, so it's really important to have that awareness that we need to have both of these. We need to have this balance. It's they, they often talk about the two wings of awakening. You have, um, the insight, awareness on one side and compassion on the other side. So you have to have both of these. And of course, mindfulness, which is what cultivates the insight, cultivates the wisdom, is incredibly important. If we don't have mindfulness, um, we, we're not able, not able to see clearly. We can't, we can't see where we are. Uh, what did Thich Nhat Hanh say? We're not present. We miss out on everything if we're not paying attention. We're somewhere else. We're in the future. We're in the past. And we're reacting through habits. Or if we don't see that we're caught in a habitual state of, of reactivity, then we're just going to miss things. We're not going to respond wisely to, to what's actually happening. We're going to maybe react to what we think is happening or what I think happened, or what I think you said, or what might happen, and I want to cut that off at the past, so I'm going to do this. And So we're not present. We're not in our bodies. We're not in our minds. Um, so insight meditation practice cultivates that present time awareness. That's the foundation, and it's the foundation of so many things. It's the foundation of the, the factors of awakening. The first factor of awakening, of liberation, is mindfulness. You have to pay attention. You have to be present. It allows us to be present to, to uh, connect with our emotions. I mean, the, one, of the, one of the foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation of mindfulness, is to know when there's joy, know when there's anger, know when these things are present. Because so often in our culture, we're taught not to pay attention or that anger's not good or snap out of it or we're not supposed to feel this or you have two days you're allowed to feel grief and then you have to move on or whatever stories we learn growing up and in our lives um, we may not see emotion I was disconnected from my emotions for a really long time so I it took me days sometimes to 
to, to go, oh, I was angry four days ago at that person when they said that. It's because we're so disconnected. So this, this, this cultivation of awareness of what's happening right now, what's, what's arising right here, it's so important. And we also, because of the clarity that comes from being present, we begin to see where we're stuck. We begin to recognize those habits of mind. Oh, that is this story that I tell myself over and over again, that, that I'm unlovable or I'm always on the outside or whatever it is, we're not good enough. However our stories roll out, we begin to recognize that they're getting in the way. They're, they just kind of kick in and we go with them and we buy them. I, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's, who often thinks, and I've, not, I've heard this from so many of my friends. I don't have kids, but I've heard it from so many of my friends that it can't be true because they all think they're the worst mother ever because they're just tired because, you know, they make mistakes and they yell at their kids and they don't want to yell at their kids or whatever. And they say, I'm the worst mother ever. And it's like, obviously that's not true. But when that gets stuck in your mind, you just go there. You do something and you just go there. And it's that suffering. That's the root of suffering. So to begin to be clear about what causes that, that's the, that's the wisdom that, that the mind is beginning to see what's happening. And in practice, at some point, this, this, um, this clarity begins to offer a connection, to, a heart connection that, hap- that arises naturally. Gil has talked about this too. He talks about, you know, insight practice deeply allows this compassion and kindness to... Um, to, to open into this spaciousness, this spacious heart that's available. And you have the heart and the mind working together. They neither cling to nor resist anything. You know, they, they are both clear and open and unobstructed. There's no wall in front of the heart protecting us from whatever might get in. Um, but oftentimes... We have deeply embedded emotions. We have these deeply ingrained habits that need some extra support to chip away at what's um, blocking our hearts, that what's keeping us from being fully open and fully, fully joined with the mind, the insight and the, and the heart. And... Um, this is where the heart practices come in. You have the mindfulness practice, but then you have the heart practices. And Sharon Salzberg, who wrote the book Loving Kindness and really wrote so beautifully about um, loving kindness or goodwill, friendliness and, and um, compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, she says, she, she said, the Buddha offers a spiritual path that is a liberation of the heart. And this spiritual path that's a liberation of the heart are the Brahma Viharas, the, the divine abodes. Um, and it's a systematic path that moves the heart out of isolation and into connection. We begin, begin to become connected because if you're familiar, and I think you all are familiar with the heart, the Brahma Viharas, the metta practice, karuna practice, mudita, you, be, you offer phrases to yourself, which starts to chip away at any... Um, 
and any armor you have from offering kindness and compassion to yourself. And then you offer kindness, compassion, joy towards others, people you care about, people you're like meh about, and people you're not necessarily crazy about, difficult people. So it's a continually working on softening the heart. The, um, the Brahma Viharas were really outlined in the Vasudhi Maga, which is uh, a 5th century kind of um, systematization of the Buddhist teachings. And this is where they were really laid out. And um, Buddha Gosa, who wrote it, he talks about, and I love this, let's see, what did he say? When he was talking about metta, metta is the solvent that dissolves the toxins that we have built up. And so this loving kindness and these other heart practices chip away at these toxins that we have used to armor ourselves. Um, and Tanasuro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff, has written about... Um, he's written about this in his little... Um, his little treatise on, what is it, head and heart together. And he says, of these four Brahma-viharas, goodwill, he, he, he translates metta as goodwill. He says, of these four emotions, goodwill is the most fundamental. It's the wish for true happiness, a wish you can direct to yourself or others. Goodwill was the underlying motivation that led the Buddha to search for awakening and to teach the path to awakening to others after he had found it. So it was this inclination towards kindness, towards goodwill, towards metta for all beings that set him on the path to teach for 45 years. He didn't just sit back and, and, and you know, rest in his awareness. He said, okay, I'm going to offer this so that all beings, for the benefit of all beings, and then the next two emotions are essentially applications of metta, of goodwill. Compassion is what goodwill feels like when it in, encounters suffering. So that's what goodwill, um, metta, is like when it encounters suffering. And mudita, sympathetic or appreciative joy, is what goodwill feels like when it encounters happiness. There's joy for the good fortune of others, the wholesome good fortune of others. It wants the happiness to continue. Um, yeah, and Karuna wants the suffering to stop and joy, and Mudita wants the happiness to continue. Equanimity, on the other hand, is a different emotion in that it acts as an aid and a check on the other three. When you encounter suffering that you can't stop, no matter how hard you try, you need equanimity to avoid creating additional suffering and to channel your energies to areas where you can be of help. So we don't become overcome by the suffering, which is really can really happen, this balance of, you know, all beings are the heirs to their own karma and... Um, People's happiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. So to recognize that there is this, 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 this point at which we can't fix everything, no matter how hard we try and not to be overcome by that. Um, in this way, equanimity isn't cold-hearted or indifferent. It simply makes your metta more focused and effective. 
which is really, really excellent. And so that's what it's doing. Um, and we, so we cultivate this and we do these practices. We do them, you know, may all beings be free or may your suffering end or may your joy continue, whatever, whatever the practice is. And then, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the expectations about what's supposed to happen. Like, I keep throwing, I keep wishing meta for these people, but they're not any happier, you know? Or we, it's like, I always think people think about meta as magic pixie dust, where they just sprinkle it and everybody gets happy. And that's not what it's about. That's really not what it's about. And and I like how Tom Jeff talks about this. Um, he says, you know, all too often meditators believe that if they can simply add a little more heart juice, a little more emotional oomph to their practice, you know, it'll, it'll become limitless and, um, and they'll just be just this great big ball of love and compassion and kindness. But then after a month, they realize they're still pissed off at their neighbor and scowl every time they see them or whatever, looking at the, looking at Certain politicians makes them tear their hair out and walk around the house yelling "fuck you" um, or things like that, um, and so this is where the head comes in. They're thinking they're they're terrible at the Brahma Viharas. I suck. I'm no good at Metta. Blah blah. blah. Doubt, hindrance of doubt shows up. So this is this is where the head comes in. So this is what balances. So you see the heart balances the intellect or the, the, the rational, logical side that sometimes can get into some schadenfreude about, oh, I'm so sorry, you had a bad time, aha. Anyway, um, which is the pleasure at the misfortune of others. But when you're lost in this, this, this wishing and wanting and striving in the, in the heart practices, the head um, brings clarity and allows you to see what real happiness is. Not getting the stuff, not getting your way, but seeing that letting go of craving, letting go of clinging. When we can release and let things unfold the way they unfold, then there's some freedom there. Um, it's this, the head is the side that understands how cause and effect actually work. If your head and heart can learn to cooperate that is, if your head can give priority to finding the causes for true happiness and your heart can learn to embrace those causes, then, training, then the training of the mind can go far. So it's the cause of happiness, the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is our wanting it to be pleasant all the time. I want pleasant sensations. I want what I want when I want it. I don't want to, you know, afraid of losing something we have or not getting something we want. I want, I want it to turn out this way. I want world hunger to end right now. I want to solve world hunger. I want all these things. They can be the most amazing. They don't have to be selfish desires, but they're a clinging, they're a craving to a particular thing. And if the mind can recognize that it's the craving that causes the suffering. And we are able to let go. That's in, in, um, in the Eightfold Path, the second factor, renunciation, letting go. Letting go of what causes suffering, even if it's the most noble thing in the world. Can we let go? Can we let go of that? 
and just be present for what is and respond to what's right here. We have to practice. We have to pay attention and see where we're stuck. And so the so it's this balance of the heart. You know, it's this balance of the heart and the mind to move us towards the perfection of wisdom, which equanimity. The 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 Zen the Zen story is that somebody went to this great master and said, What is the um what's the meaning of life? I think that was the question. Something like that, and um, what's this all about? And the, the master replied, an appropriate response. What you want is an appropriate response to what's present. Not based on what I think should happen, but what's the appropriate response right now? You know, what is this? When we're fully in the moment, we can respond appropriately. And we're grounded by the Eightfold Path. We're grounded in the precepts. We're grounded in not causing harm. We're grounded in, in cultivating compassion and in, in generosity, we're called, grounded in kindness. We're grounded in all these things. So the mind almost reacts um, spontaneously because we've done all this work on, on sila, on ethical behavior. It's so important to have that grounding. We can't just do it willy-nilly. We have to have the ethical grounding. That's so, so paramount to this teaching and to these teachings. Um, and so... What I also wanted to talk about um, a little bit, I think we, t- we, we talk about mindfulness a lot and that cultivation of being here now and what is this? And, you know, that Zen mind, beginner's mind, what is this? Letting go of our ideas of what it is and really facing what it is. Um, it's like, you know, what is it? Plato's Cave, where you all you see are the shadows on the wall and you can create these um, really intricate scenarios, but when you actually look at what it is, it's something totally different. I mean, we do that all the time. We do that all the time. I do that all the time. I mind read. I fortune tell. I know all those things. I see somebody doing something, or I see the way... I do it at airports, when I went to airports. Um, I would just watch people. I love people watching. And I would just make up, based on what they're wearing, what they're eating, what what kind of suitcase they had, I knew all about them, and I liked them or I didn't like them. And it was like, and that's when I started having to say, oh, um, what is it? I forgot. That's what I pra- started practicing. Oh, I forgot. I love you. You know, I have to start doing meta at airports, but it's a practice to go, oh, get rid of that preconceived, made up nonsense. So the thing about the Brahma Viharas, the thing about the heart practices is that they are unconditional. Everyone, no matter what, that the one sentence and one phrase in the metta sutta is oftentimes translated as omitting none we offer this to all beings omitting none zero zip nada including ourselves we're included in that because we when we get into this i me my and creation of um identities we can easily separate ourselves so this cultivation of the of, of, of the mind, of clarity, and the heart begins to melt that, um, that uh, separation. And so it's unconditional, and we're, we're working on our hearts as we offer loving kindness to themselves, to ourselves. Um, 
Yeah, if if this practice of loving kindness causes suffering, not discomfort, because it can be challenging. It can be not easy when we start this practice, because some of us may not be used to offering loving kindness to ourselves. We have to um, discern the difference between between a challenging experience and making the effort to stay with it, and actually causing ourselves suffering or isolation. And, and watch and begin and investigate that. Maybe check it out with someone you know, someone you trust. So um, let me just go through a couple of things in the things I think are important that may not often be talked about, but maybe they are. But in the hard practices, they are often, um, they talk about having a near enemy and a far enemy. And the near enemy is just close enough to see that, you know, get confused with it. So for metta, for friendliness, um, the near enemy is making it conditional. I will love you if. There's no if. It's period. So if you find yourself saying, when you shape up, and that includes ourselves, I will be, I will, I want you to be happy if you get your shit together or whatever we have lurking in the back of the mind. And the invitation of this is to let that go. Just drop that conditionality. It's unconditional. And then the, the far enemy of uh, metta is anger or hatred, and that's pretty obvious. That's why a lot of times um, the antidote to uh, anger is a loving-kindness practice. Because it, it, it washes that away and mitigates it. For karuna or compassion, the near enemy is pity. It's big, and what pity is, it's a, it's a comparison. It puts us on a pedestal. And it's like, oh, you poor thing. Like we're looking down instead of being um, in an equal relationship, but being touched and wanting to help. If we can, um, so watching that, watching that, that it can, you know, that compassion can turn into pity, and then also watching, t- we're not overcome with grief. We don't let it over overcome us because then we make it about us. It becomes about me. Oh, your grief is so I can't deal with your grief. That's that. I I really think, I have no training in this, but I've seen a lot of folks who've had um, lost spouses or parents or loved very close loved ones, and um, folks don't want to hear about it after six months. It's like, time's up. You should be over this by now. Not because they think the other person should be over it, but because they don't want to have to feel it anymore. It's like, I don't want to hear that you still miss your husband after 14 years, you know? I don't want to, you know, it's like, la, 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 la. But we can't help how these emotions arise. And so letting, you know, not being overcome by the the immensity of what's going on, recognizing that there is joy, that there is happiness, and that we do what we can with what we have and the time we have, really keeping that balance, that equanimity. And then mudita, um, the near enemy is hypocrisy. It's like, oh, I'm so happy for you. Or only happy for you being happy for the other person because maybe it serves you as well. I'm really happy you hit that home run because now my team wins. 
whatever, that kind of thing. Um, or comparison. You know, I'm happy for you because your joy is not quite as good as my joy. Or I'm, I'm glad you got the raise, but I still make more money than you do. That type of thing. It's just pure joy for the good fortune of others. Absolutely. And then, um, oh, excuse me, I, I missed the opposite of compassion, which is cruelty, which is obviously not compassionate. And then the opposite of mudita is jealousy. And, and with some of these things like cruelty or anger or jealousy, that emotion might arise, like somebody might have good fortune and you might feel the emotion arise. And it's, it, it, that is sometimes can't be helped. But you don't act from it. You don't speak from it. It's almost like, oh, here's jealousy. I'm still happy for you, but there's still this, this residual um, craving, wanting something different. And so I tend to that as well. There might be, you, got, you have some good fortune, and I'm pissed off. Oh, look at the anger. Or, you know, um, whatever that, that far enemy is, if it shows up, we have clarity around it. And we don't put it on and we don't act from it, but we don't say we're bad people because it's there because we can't help it. It's a residual reactivity that eventually we move to, um, we just don't, we don't act on it. It may always come back, but if we're aware and clear, we don't have to put it on and, and, and let it become part of us or take birth as a jealous person or take birth as an angry person. And then equanimity, people often think, Equanimity means indifference. It means you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't care. You are absolutely touched by the suffering of others. You are joyful for their good fortune, but you're not, we're not overcome by it. And this is where some people move into spiritual bypass, thinking that, um, oh, I'm so sorry about you. It's because they don't want to feel. So they're like, oh, I'm just being equanimous. We're, they're in denial of the reality. So equanimity, we still feel the suffering of others. But we're not overwhelmed by it. We see it clearly. There's this balance there. So that can be indifference or um, spiritual bypassing as a near enemy. Um, and then the opposite is anxiety or, or, or worry or stress, you know, when we're not um, equanimous, which is there's an ease and a balance. So um, really being, cultivating the heart practices, using mindfulness to see what's arising. We have to be present, even when we're, when we're practicing metta and karuna and, and mudita, we have to be present, we have to see what's going on. We have to check and make sure we're not slipping into some old thinking. And then, um, yeah, and then this, this um, what's he say? Um, the perfection of wisdom is when the heart and mind neither cling to nor resist anything. And that kind of is also a kind of dovetails with my one of my favorite definitions of equanimity which is a deep and a deep and steady intimacy with ourselves beyond preference we are willing to be intimate with our own emotions with our own feelings beyond preference 
We don't need anything to be a certain way in order to be okay. And I love, I found this quote somewhere from Pema Chodron. When we're not doing that, when we're putting up armor, when we're putting up walls, she says, protecting ourselves from suffering does not mean we're being kind to ourselves. The truth is we become more fearful and more alienated when we think we're protecting ourselves. There's no way to protect ourselves from suffering. It, there is suffering. We're human beings. We can't dis disengage from being uh, human. We can't disengage from um, the human condition. So to fully embrace that, acknowledge the reality of existence, and to find some comfort and ease inside of that is really what this practice is inviting us to do. It's so important. It's so um, vital. And, um, and that's, that's the path. That's the path we're on. So thank you so much for your uh, kind attention. And um, I hope it was uh, of some benefit. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.